So in the recovery trial, a hydroxychloroquine arm, there were almost 1,600 people enrolled who got the toxic doses, and 396 are said to have died. There has been a concerted campaign to go after doctors and take away their licenses if they do not adhere to the single medical narrative about COVID. It also just allowed me to see clearly that a cabal was trying to take over the world, that you, you don't cause the deaths of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people by suppressing cheap and readily available drugs that would have taken care of the pandemic quickly. You don't do that unless you have a quite significant ulterior motive. Hello, everyone. Those were some clips of today's guest, Dr. Merrill Nass. During the early days of the COVID era, Dr. Nass was a key figure in bringing to light the toxic doses of the drug hydroxychloroquine were being administered in medical trials, with lethal effects. In this interview, I asked Dr. Nass whether the deaths caused by such trials were substantial enough to significantly impact the excess mortality rate. Dr. Nass also addresses the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, as well as Dr. Fauci's preferred antiviral, remdesivir, and the vaccination program. We then talk about how Dr. Nass has had her medical license suspended and been subject to a psychiatric evaluation. Finally, we discuss the deeper agenda lurking behind COVID. So here's Dr. Nass talking about how the issue of toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine came to light. I didn't actually break the first story. There were um, people on Twitter who noticed that the recovery trial was using these very high doses, 2,400 milligrams of uh, hydroxychloroquine during the first 24 hours and then 800 milligrams a day thereafter. And um, so this was sort of a widely discussed on Twitter and a fellow named Ed Fordham, who I only learned of later, um, began writing about this at about the same time I did. I began writing about it in uh, May, in late May of 2020. Um, what I did that several things that were in addition to what other people had done um, is First of all, I looked for other trials. I wondered if maybe other people were using these kind of um, very questionable doses. And I was surprised to discover that several other trials were doing the same thing. And I um, you know, explored why that might be. And then I also did a deep dive into the textbooks and um, the journal articles that had been written about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and what appropriate dosing ought to be. I also looked at um, a paper that had been written by Nicholas White, who was associated with the, the Oxford group. So he had a, an affiliation with the recovery trial people, and he had written about dosing and had not recommended these high doses, even though it was claimed by Martin Landry later that he had. Um, and so I, I explored and, and showed that no one had ever recommended such doses before for any reason, any medical diagnosis. Um, and, and being a physician, I had actually used the drugs and was very familiar with them and was able to talk about the, the clinical use as well. So, I th so 
having added those, those bits in May and uh, early June of 2020, I then, I published an article in June after publishing two earlier pieces about the overdoses um, that looked at over 20 ways the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine for COVID had been suppressed, not only in the US and Europe, but in around the world. And I kept collecting mechanisms by which these drugs were suppressed and eventually got up to about 57 different uh, ways in, in, separate from each other. Um, these drugs had been deliberately suppressed. And of course, as I, as I went through this process, um, I realized what a huge conspiracy was required and how many billions of dollars had to be spent in order to achieve all these mechanisms of suppression and that the only explanation would be to prolong the pandemic to, and what that meant was keeping people apart and bringing in new policies that, um, for example, you know, bringing in more 5G that were enabled by the sort of slowdown of normal life that uh, the pandemic policies and allowed. Um, it, it also just allowed me to imagine, to, to, to understand, to see clearly that a cabal was trying to take over the world, that you, you don't cause the deaths of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people by suppressing cheap and readily available drugs that would have taken care of the pandemic quickly. Um, you don't do that unless you have um, a, 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 an ulterior motive and uh, a quite significant until, until ulterior motive. Okay, I'll, I'd love to come back to that point about the cabal and the wider plan for this in a moment, but just to stick with the details, what I see of the hydroxychloroquine is there's two narratives arisen about it. So the, the one uh, being, the one presented in like the, the real Anthony Fauci, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book, that these trials were using toxic doses were part of a wider pattern, as you're saying, dismissed, was used to dismiss hydroxychloroquine as an effective treatment. Okay, but your work is also quoted extensively in the book Virus Mania, which takes a different perspective on it, presenting the what's causing those death spikes we saw across European countries and then the United States in the second quarter of 2020 couldn't have been a virus. And they present evidence like when Spain's spike comes, I think it's Spain has the biggest spike in Europe, right next door is Portugal, which has really next to nothing. At the same way, France and Belgium have substantial spikes in April of 2020. Germany um, has nothing. So Dr. Klaus Kohlein uh, authored this article, which became a substantial part of the virus mania chapter on COVID set alongside your work and suggesting that what's going on here is drugs trials. It's trials of things like hydroxychloroquine, perhaps also how the elderly are being looked after. Um, but because viruses cannot respect an international border the way it seems they are doing. So I'd like to ask you can about- I, Can I interrupt you just a moment? Yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar with virus mania. Who wrote it? It was a combination of doctors. Klaus Kohlein was one of them. Dr. Sam Bailey joined in um, recently. He was a substantial um, Odyssey channel um, looking at, and it's very much from the perspective of viruses either um, at an extreme end don't exist, or they're not responsible for disease, or they're not responsible for disease to the extent we think they are. 
May, may I um, jump in? Yeah. What we had in the United States is probably what you what was also occurring in Europe is that there were waves in different locations in different at different times. And you can see this very easily by just looking at the New York Times, which will list sometimes by county and definitely by state what the rates of COVID cases, deaths and hospitalizations are. And so what happened here is that certain areas got hit very hard, as you said, in the first quarter or the second quarter, other areas got hit later. Eventually, all the areas got hit, but there are still states. My state is, is relatively spared. We probably had about half the death rate as some other states. And I think that is what happened in Europe too. So in early, just as what's happening, you can see it clearly with monkeypox, right? The UK has a lot of cases. Spain has a lot of cases, you know, um, Belgium doesn't, but um, if it spreads the way COVID spread, I don't think it will. Um, you will you will get these rising waves, but as more people become immune, you will see less in the places that were hit harder before. So um, I just want to make clear for your audience that I do believe viruses exist. I do believe COVID is a, is caused by a virus, and furthermore, I believe that that virus was created in a laboratory and designed right. to be uh, and designed to be pathogenic. So you don't think that it's um, necessarily discounts the idea of a virus that you can have one jurisdiction which is flat in terms of excess deaths and right next to it, there's a jurisdiction which has uh, a spike. That's not in your Absolutely. view. Absolutely. Right. And, if you, and if you look cumulatively over time, you'll see that those spikes vary in different places. Um, you'll also see now in recent months that the places with the higher rates of vaccination are having the highest rates of cases. Mm -hmm. Just, I'll just like, finish up on the hydroxychloroquine point. Do, so one, um, as I said, the way of looking at the, the, those trials were used to dismiss hydroxychloroquine, but does that in a sense bury the lead in that if toxic doses are being used, would that play in to the excess death and give the impression that COVID was more dangerous than it was because a percentage of those excess deaths Absolutely. are hydroxychloroquine Absolutely. Deaths, yeah. So in the um, recovery trial, hydroxychloroquine arm, there were almost 1,600 people enrolled who got the toxic doses, and 396 are said to have died. That, that's 25%. was, I think, 25.7% of those who received hydroxychloroquine in that trial. Uh, now, if you go to any hospital, 25% um, dying from COVID is a very, very high number. So I, I think we can um, safely assume that had they not gotten the hydroxychloroquine, fewer would have died. Now, if you look at the WHO trial, they gave the same dose. The trial was conducted in uh, over 400 hospitals. They claim to have given it to little less than 1,000 people and say that only about 100 died. So only about 10% death rate, allegedly using the same protocol. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know if these numbers are correct. We have to rely on you know the the trial um, administrators uh, providing us accurate data and when they are at risk of um, being charged with murder for overdosing patients they may not have given us accurate data um, but in any event in the um, WHO solidarity trial the death rate in the people who received the high dose hydroxychloroquine was 19% uh, 
higher than in the control group. So um, it, would, it would be interesting to identify the families of people who died and see what they were told. Mm -hmm. Did they even know that their relative was en enrolled in a clinical trial? You know, was um, informed consent obtained? Um, there, quest there are a lot of questions. The, the WHO's trial in its report in the New England Journal of Medicine claimed that some of the informed consent forms were handed back to patients, which makes no sense because an informed consent form is obtained to provide legal protection to the investigator, not, not necessarily to the patient, but to the investigator. So you would never give an informed consent form to a patient you would keep it, you have to keep it. And in fact, elsewhere, WHO said that they needed to get the informed consent scanned before they could enroll a patient. But in the New England Journal, they said they didn't have all the informed consents. So probably people were not consented. Some people were not consented and were given these toxic doses. Okay, so you're talking about a few hundred people. When the, the UK was at its peak, for example, I think there was an extra 10,000 deaths a week. It was a doubling of the typical death rate. So do you think the, the kind of death you could be talking about from these trials would be substantial enough to show up on that graph? Or do you think the majority is still going to be like COVID deaths? As I said, there were only, the trial was, each trial was carried out for several months. And there were only 1,600 people in the UK, all four UK countries enrolled who got the hydroxychloroquine okay. dose. And there were only a little less than 1,000 in the WHO trial. So no, they would be lost in the larger numbers of alleged COVID deaths. Now, are they COVID deaths? In the United States, the CDC has changed the labeling on its um, death uh, data. So now the deaths are said to be with COVID. So if you go to the CDC website and look up COVID tracker, you'll see it lists the deaths with COVID, which means Many people who went into a, everyone who enters a hospital, enters an emergency room or gets admitted has to be swabbed for COVID. And if you go in with a broken leg or a stroke or heart attack, if you are, have a positive swab, you are labeled a COVID patient as well. And if you die, your death is then listed as a COVID, with COVID death in the US. Now in the UK, there've been several different you have different um, systems for uh, collecting deaths and identifying them. And those systems have not always agreed. But Tom, Tom Jefferson and his colleague, whose name escapes me at the moment, ha have written about the um, methodologic problems in the calculation of deaths uh, due to COVID, with COVID, or sometimes having nothing at all to do with COVID. For example, in the US, people who had a positive COVID test and then died of a gunshot wound or, or a car accident were uh, initially identified as deaths due to COVID. Okay. Um, I'd just like to ask a bit more about after you your work came out not hydroxychloroquine, what was the reaction to that in terms of positive and I mean, I, um, I'm assuming you weren't invited to the World Health Organization to speak on this. Um, or to have a sit down with, with Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci. Uh, right. Did you receive any kind of pushback of people telling you you got the whole dose wrong thing and this was a load of nonsense? Or did you receive any 
kind of recognition that this was correct and those trials had been um, indeed toxic. Okay, I do remember Tom Jefferson's colleague's name, which is Carl Hennigan, H-E-N-N-E-G-H-A-N, and so I'd refer uh, listeners to to look up their papers. Um, Regarding the work I did on hydroxychloroquine, um, I actually contacted by Twitter and by email uh, Tedros and Ana Maria Henao Restrepo at the WHO, informed them that the the dose they were using was toxic, you know, gave them references and told them that if they had not obtained informed consent and notified patients that this was a known toxic dose. And and by the way, I had identified a paper that had been written for the WHO in 1979 that looked at exactly what the lethal dose of chloroquine was at that time. So WHO had actually paid a consultant to investigate uh, toxic doses of the chloroquine drugs. And so I pointed out that the WHO consultant had said this was a borderline lethal dose and um, that they could be liable. And within a few days, the, w- the WHO trial stopped. Right. The, the hydroxychloroquine arm of it. Arm of it, yes. Stopped. Okay. Yeah. Um, you've recently published on the rollout of both vaccinations and remdesivir to particularly young children. Could I ask you to maybe talk through those articles on on remdesivir and the anything you'd like to say about the approval process of that drug in contrast to hydroxychloroquine um chloroquine has been a licensed drug in the u.s for over 60 years and hydroxychloroquine um for over i think 45 years so fully licensed used in you know, many millions of doses used for malaria, used to prevent malaria and occasionally to treat it, used for um, systemic lupus erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, and sometimes for other autoimmune diseases. In addition, uh, hydroxychloroquine in combination with an antibiotic is used for Lyme disease. And I have used it in, I think about 200 Lyme patients, my estimate. So there's a lot of experience with these drugs. They're inexpensive to manufacture. They are based originally on quinine, which is in tonic water. It is, it's made from the bark of the cinchona tree. Um, So it's a, the quinine and and the bark of the cinchona have been used for hundreds of years um, for malaria. The drug remdesivir was developed as an antiviral and both the NIH, Tony Fauci's agency, the NIAID, and the Army have um, some claims to the drug. So they will obtain royalties when the drug is sold. Um, The Gilead Company uh, is the manufacturer of the drug now. It was tested in the Ebola um, epidemic wasn't particularly useful there. So it had been sitting around looking for a use. And Tony Fauci had to finagle the original clinical trials in order to make it appear to have some efficacy. And it did not, in those initial trials, it did not reduce mortality, but appeared to reduce time spent in the hospital. 
The endpoint of the major trial was changed twice in order to give it the appearance of efficacy. And then FDA issued an emergency use authorization for the drug and a few months later issued a license for the drug in, to, in 2020. At that time, the WHO and the Europeans felt the drug had no effectiveness and urged people not to use it. But it was used in the US and it was made this what's called the standard of care. Um, the standard of care is a sort of a legal construct that um, tells doctors what they should be doing. And if they do not practice medicine using the standard of care, they could be subject to a malpractice claim. What happened is that the NIH, which normally is a research organization, it is not an organization that establishes clinical practice standards or guidelines, for some reason took it upon itself to create a committee that issued guidelines for the care of COVID. And their initial guideline was to make remdesivir the standard of care. It turned out that a of the 30 or 40 members of that committee, 16 of them had had a finance, did have currently or previously had a financial conflict of interest with the Gilead company. Um, so the United States has continued to use remdesivir in virtually all patients hospitalized with COVID. And there are many studies that suggest it doesn't work. And there are a few that suggest it does. Um, but something's happened recently, and the WHO just amended its former guidelines and suggested it was okay to use remdesivir. And the United States issued, um, it, basically, the FDA extended the license, which only had licensed it for older people, uh, so that it can now be used uh, in children as young as babies. Um, there is very, very minimal evidence to support that use. Um, over two years, 53 children received remdesivir uh, when they were hospitalized for COVID and there was no control group, there was no randomization. This was not a clinical trial, it's simply observational data. Several of the children died and FDA said that was evidence and, and I think the majority of them had adverse reactions. But FDA said this was sufficient evidence to extend the license to children. Um, what Now, remdesivir is an antiviral, and like hydroxychloroquine, one might anticipate that it is only going to be effective, if at all, while virus is replicating in the body, while you have actively growing virus. In COVID, at the beginning of the illness, you have a viral syndrome, but after about seven to 10 days, the virus is gone. Your immune system has gotten rid of it. And the later phase or phases of the illness are due to autoimmunity, to reactions to the virus, to blood clots, to damage to the lining of blood vessels, um, uh, to cytokine storm, et cetera. And so using a drug that only works as an antiviral when you're in this later stage doesn't make sense. And of course, that's what's been done with remdesivir so far. 
because virtually everyone who goes in the hospital goes in during the second stage. So the US is now going to attempt to use remdesivir in outpatients. It's an IV drug. The only way this can be done is to have drive up clinics where you can get an IV placed in you as an outpatient and, and receive a dose of remdesivir for three to five days in a row. And um, so that is now what has been started and um, we will find out whether it has any efficacy early in the course of the illness. However, remdesivir is a drug that costs at least $3,000 for that initial uh, few days of treatment. Whereas you could buy, you know, in the third world, you could buy the entire course of about 14 to 16 pills of hydroxychloroquine for a dollar. And uh, you don't need an IV and it's a lot safer. It doesn't cause renal failure. Um, so what we have is basically the federal government is still in the US and I don't know about the rest of the world now, is still doing its best to suppress the use of the cheap effective drugs and try out experimental drugs on the population, which um, may do more harm than good without proffering any clinical evidence to suggest that they are gonna work in the way they're being used. So remdesivir in children or adults, you know, we don't, we don't see the evidence, but everybody's now who gets it will, will be an experimental subject. I'm gonna ask essentially the same follow-up question as I did for hydroxychloroquine in that remdesivir is another drug that people have suggested is very unsafe, potentially toxic, and could itself be increasing the death rate. So I'd like to ask your opinion on that. And also, if that's the case, would it have done it to the extent where you would see that um, in the uh, excess death figures? Would it, have, would it have done so to that extent? Right. So um, it's a very good question, which I'm not gonna be able to answer. Um, and the reason is that I haven't treated patients in the hospital, so I haven't seen it my, used myself. I have heard from Pierre Corey that it did not cause many deaths. I know, I do know that it co does cause kidney damage. There are the um, blood tests that you use to ascertain how well the kidneys are working often frequently reflect that there has been some impairment of kidney function while the patient is on remdesivir. And that often resolves completely. Um, uh, a, um, I'm trying to think of his name, Brian Artis is a, a chiropractor who has suggested that the death rate is very, very high from remdesivir. And um, I have not seen supporting evidence for that. But I wish to demur because it's not an area that I have expertise in. Right. I think Brian Otters has also come out recently that COVID is snake venom in the water and made a documentary on that. I don't know if probably something people have sent to you. Right. I, I wrote a piece about it. I think that's nonsense. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting how these diverse narratives arise. Uh, I'll maybe ask you more about that in a second. I just... Before we come to kind of the uh, concluding um, aspect, I'd just like to ask you to comment on some of the articles you wrote on the role of the vaccination to children and how the CDC 
has massaged the figures, particularly in the graphics they're making, about how uh, Omicron is more dangerous for children and that more children end up hospitalised. And I suppose any um, opinions you have on the vaccination programme in general, I'm sorry that's horrendously broad, but I'll just turn that over and you can answer it as you wish to. Well, I could spend hours yes. answering that question. So let me first refer people to my Substack, which is merylnass.substack.com, because I've written a number of articles on this. So um, Omicron is a much less severe, but much more transmissible, much more infectious variant of COVID than all the earlier variants. And what that meant is, is that a lot more people got Omicron in a compressed period of time. And as a result, um, more adults and more children went to the hospital in a compressed period of time. But when you actually look at the rate of hospitalization for Omicron per case, uh, compared to Delta or compared to the other variants, it was actually less. So the likelihood of you requiring hospitalization, requiring a ventilator, requiring an ICU stay, if you had Omicron was less than with all the other variants. But CDC has played with the numbers and, and tried to show that in a particular week or several weeks that the numbers of children hospitalized with Omicron was very high. Well, it was for a very short period of time, for only a very few weeks, and um, almost no children died. In fact, um, if you look at the children who are hospitalized for Delta compared to Omicron, only uh, about one in seven, it had one, you were seven times more likely to require a ventilator if you had, a, if you were a child with a Delta infection compared to being a child in the hospital with an Omicron infection. So seven times more severe in terms of causing you to need a ventilator. But CDC just played with the numbers and tried to scare parents and is still trying to scare parents to make them vaccinate their children. Now, for, the vet, for healthy children, um, COVID has usually been a cold and Omicron has almost always been just a cold or nothing. So more than half the children probably who have been infected have had no symptoms at all. CDC said in February that 75% of the US population and that included children was already immune. And recently CDC said based on information they got from blood donors that 95% of the adult population was immune in terms of either having had the illness or having ha been vaccinated. So this, this was based on whether you had antibodies to the nucleocapsid, which is a, represents prior infection or antibodies to the spike, which would represent either infection or um, vaccination. So 95% of the, of the blood donating, donating population has had one or both of those conditions. That means child, very few children have not, are not already immune. Now, if you give the vaccine to anyone, a child or an adult who's got immunity already, who's already had COVID, whether it's asymptomatic or whether they were sick or had had something minor, you have a higher rate of side effects from the shot. So you're risking a, a more severe reaction 
for immunity that is not going to for a fake immunity because if you've already had um the disease your immunity is going to be much more durable more long lasting than if you got the shot we know the the most important in my view the most important study to be published and it was published in in jama it was from New York State. This was official data from the Department of Health of New York State, and it involved 1.3 million children aged between 5 through 11. And of them, about 365,000 were vaccinated and over 900,000 were not. And the state was able, knew all the dates that every child was vaccinated and when they had a positive COVID test. So. This is remarkable information because Americans don't understand every state has all the information on every COVID test and every vaccine. And with that data, we could answer any question you have about how well the vaccine works. But for New York State, they showed that the vaccine seemed to be efficacious for the first couple of weeks. That's it. And then by a month after the kids were fully vaccinated, the uh, efficacy had dropped to 50%. And by seven or eight weeks, it had dropped to 12%. In other words, seven out of eight kids had no protection by eight weeks. And when you waited a week or two longer, the children who were vaccinated were actually more susceptible to COVID. The same thing has been shown in a study from Cutter that was published, um, I think in the Lancet, could be wrong, maybe in the New England Journal um, in the last couple of weeks. And the same has been shown uh, in some data from the UK. So it turns out, or appears to, to turn out, when you're looking at large numbers of people, the, the Cutter data, now that's Q-A-T-A-R, Cutter, um, was for over 100,000 people. So these are big numbers, official data, um, reveal that people become more susceptible. They have, the vaccine has negative efficacy after several months have gone by. And after that, you are at greater risk. Your body is apparently unable to mount a full broad immune response. You're, the, the fact that you are vaccinated has limited the immune response produced by your body when it does get in contact with COVID after those first few months. So it's a very serious problem. We, we haven't had enough months yet go by to know the extent of it. How, right now, it seems like the increase in susceptibility is relatively small. I haven't seen it go above 40% at the most uh, in any studies, but it may get worse. And so parents who are thinking about vaccinating their children consider that you may only be protecting them for a few weeks and after that you're making them more at risk for this condition as well as potentially making spike protein that that has its own set of toxicities that could potentially be dangerous very dangerous so um, I would advise people hold off on your vaccination wait and see uh, how bad this situation may get before you make a choice to vaccinate because we, you are unable to balance the risks and benefits at this time because we're, we're seeing the, the risks become worse and the benefits become less. So hold off, wait, and let's see 
where this goes. Okay, thank you. To start to come to an end, I'd like to loop round to the beginning and ask a bit about your situation. You had your license to practice medicine suspended in the early part of this year. And if someone looks you up on the internet now, they'll find all sorts of articles appearing in the American, even the British press. There's a, an article about you in the Daily Mail um, that you had your license suspended for um, prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And then there's other points made um, that infer you were keeping your notes in a bad way. You were diagnosing people over the telephone that seemed to, well, certainly slant a, a perspective on you. Um, can you talk about what's, happened to you over the past few months and, and where you're at with that now? Yes. So, um, yes, there has been a concerted campaign uh, in the U.S. and perhaps elsewhere, I don't know, to um, go after doctors and take away their licenses if they do not um, adhere to the single medical narrative about COVID, which is that the vaccines are safe and effective and that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin don't work and that the federal public health agencies are doing everything in their power um, positive to respond to the epidemic. As you've heard from me speaking to you for the last half hour, you know that I have a much more nuanced um, impression of uh, how to respond and of the vaccines. And I am not allowed to, or let me say this, in the United States, we have something called the Constitution and we have a Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution that were added at the very beginning of the, of the United States coming to fruition in the late 1700s. And the First Amendment gives us freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom um, to gather. Now, all of those things have been impacted by the pandemic. Um, but our Constitution and Bill of Rights are supposed to be the ultimate law of the land. So the, the legal aspects of this have not yet um, been resolved. There have not been cases in the courts that have um, finally said that doctors may not tell what they consider to be the truth, or doctors can. Doctors do have the right of free speech, just like anyone else. In my case, um, the board has jurisdiction over my practice of medicine, but I don't think they still, they so far have jurisdiction over my private life. And since all of the comments that they objected to were done in my private life and not in the office, they have a weakness, even if they are allowed, if the, I don't think they're allowed to question what I say in the office either. But um, it so happens what they're complaining about is what I said on the internet, on my blog and my Substack, et cetera. Um, the, my use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin to provide early treatment for COVID um, is something that had they bothered to read the medical literature, they would have found is, is well supported. The, the, you know, 80 or 90% of the papers, and there are over 300 papers on hydroxychloroquine and there are over 80 papers on ivermectin um, reveal that these drugs are effective uh, against COVID. And generally the papers that say the reverse have been paid for either by NIAID or by um, the Wellcome Trust or, or by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which also, by the way, those two foundations supported the solidarity and recovery trials that overdose patients on hydroxychloroquine. 
Um, so what's so anyway? I and those drugs can be prescribed off label. It's legal. Um, the medical board didn't know what they were doing. It, it's perfectly legal for me to have prescribed them. And um, there is no uh, legal obligation for me to obey the NIH guidelines, um, nor what they allege to be a standard of care when the medical literature clearly shows it isn't. Um, so my now my license was summarily suspended. That means they, they didn't, I've not had a hearing. I have not been able so far to say one word in front of the board. Um, and uh, that day will come, or the, hopefully several weeks of testimony will come uh, there. But, you know, it's going to be months down the road before this is resolved by the medical board. Now, uh, states in the U.S. are rising up and trying to stop their medical boards from doing this. It, there are only about 10 or 15 medical boards that have gone after doctors in this manner. and now at least half the states, those who have Republican governors or um, attorney generals have been either voting in the legislatures um, that doctors are free to use these drugs. Um, in some cases, the attorney generals have issued opinions that doctors are free to use these drugs and the medical boards are not may not go after them. And in some cases like Florida, you know, the governor and the surgeon general have um, issued uh, opinions stating that, for example, Florida is not requesting any vaccine for young children. You know, they don't approve of uh, vaccinating young children under the age of five for COVID, and they will not make uh, the clinics of Florida available to do so. So there's been a lot of pushback. Um, it, it's become a very political issue, not a medical issue, and we'll see what happens. What was the possible justification for requiring you to undergo a psychiatric evaluation? Um, so in order for the, so let me just tell you a bit about myself. I, I've practiced medicine for 41 years. I have a stellar reputation. I have testified before Congress, uh, six, given six testimonies to six different congressional committees. I've testified before a number of state legislatures. I've published many papers, given many talks. Um, I have never had a malpractice case. I've once had a complaint to the medical board, which investigated it. It was resolved in my favor, and the uh, son of the patient who had complained apologized to me for misunderstanding um, my treatment, which had been perfectly fine. So um, the board had very little to go on in terms of uh, challenging me, you know, they, they were desperate and they must have been instructed that uh, I was to be used as a poster child with national or international um, publicity because there was quite a lot of publicity the day that the license was suspended. So they have, a, the board has a list of things, uh, you know, things I might be guilty of that could justify a suspension. Well, you know, I didn't meet any of them. I hadn't done any of those things. You know, I haven't, I hadn't uh, sexually abused a patient or, you know, operated on somebody on the wrong side or, or whatever. So the only thing they could come up with to justify an immediate suspension was that I must be crazy. 
However, they didn't have any evidence of that either. No one had alleged that I was crazy or that I had any psychiatric illness, never been treated for psychiatric illness. I've never taken a psychiatric drug. Um, so in order to, to try to give themselves some uh, standing, a foundation for, for taking away my license, they ordered a psychological, neuropsychological exam with a professional that they chose on a date they chose and ordered me to attend. Obviously, that person had been instructed to, to give me a psychiatric diagnosis. And um, so they supposedly heard about me for the first time on January 11th, but clearly they hadn't heard about me for the first time on January 11th, because at the conclusion of their meeting, I was handed the appointment with a neuropsychologist, and I was handed a nine-page um, statement of why they were suspending my license. So the thing had been cooked up ahead of time. I don't know who was behind it. Um, I don't think the board members really understood the, the basics of the case. Um, they certainly didn't know anything about me. Nobody had read my curriculum vitae. Uh, I, they will learn. They will learn. I look forward to educating them on what the law says, what the Constitution says, and, and who I am. And uh, I'm sure that I have a more impressive um, resume than, than anybody on the board. Okay, well, I'll pick up on that for my penultimate question. Then your resume includes working on Gulf War Syndrome and mm -hmm. it includes anthrax vaccinations. And you've written about the anthrax attacks of the year 2001. And so I'd like to loop back to the comment you made at the start about the, what's behind uh, this COVID agenda and the reshaping of the world. Has, has the, the events of the past couple of years shifted your worldview? I'm sure you can't be involved in things like re writing about the anthrax attacks and not have um, a more cynical worldview when it comes to state power and deeper agendas. So ha have you, how, how has your position formed on that um, over time and over the past two years? Well, you're asking me a question that would take several hours to answer. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So like, so which part would you like me to answer? <laughs> whatever you feel is most relevant about uh, the, the sort of deeper agenda that's going on. Like I noticed you've written recently, you've expanded, you've written about uh, the, the school shooting that took place and the MK Ultra program. And so now I'm, I'm expanding it further now. So let's, let's not go there. But um, just, just on the comments you made at the start, really, about the, the deeper agenda behind COVID and this reshaping of the world. Okay. Um, so I started by saying you can't um, use over 50 different methods to suppress the use of an effective drug for COVID in the middle of a you know, deadly pandemic unless you have an ulterior agenda. And there are many other things that have happened in the last couple of years and then in decades before that um, support the fact that there isn't a major agenda at play to reshape the world. And um, I would say that the events of 9-11 and the anthrax letters led to um, a lot of money being spent in the United States on biodefense, over $100 billion, led to a massively enhanced surveillance state, led to passage of the Patriot Act, um, led to the so-called global war on terror, which was an excuse for the United States to go into countries that couldn't effectively defend themselves. Um, 
probably to steal oil or to steal natural resources. And those countries I could mention would include Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and the fact that the United States has uh, supported the Saudis in their war on Yemen. Um, that's just for starts. So, um, so what's going on? We have seen um, a lot of uh, measures that reduce food production, appear to food production or storage or um, manufacturing. There's been a lot of fires at food industries lately. There's even been two airplanes that wound up crashing into food manufacturing or storage facilities. We have a loss of fertilizer from Ukraine, and we have the Union Pacific Railroad refusing to carry 20% of the fertilizer from the US's largest fertilizer manufacturer here in the, in the spring when farmers need it. Um, and people are talking about potential famine, especially in the third world. Those things didn't need to happen. Um, the United States, I would suggest, goaded um, Putin into uh, the attacks in Ukraine. I don't, I don't mean to impute that the, the Ukraine problem is all due to the Biden administration, but we did. But the U.S. government, no matter which party was in power, um, did not uh, expect the Maidan agreements of 2014 to be followed and has apparently assisted with the Azov battalion and the paramilitaries, the Nazi paramilitaries in Ukraine in attacking parts of Eastern Ukraine that were Russian speaking over the last eight years. So um, the embargo on, on petroleum is another thing that the United States has put into place that has not hurt the, the Russians. The ruble is up. The Russians are transferring petroleum to India where it's being refined and then sold at a high premium. So the price of gasoline goes up. You know, that means British petroleum benefits, you, you know, um, all the American and foreign um, oil companies are benefiting enormously, but the people are, are losing out. So our groceries are going up. Uh, the price of gas has about doubled in a few months. And none of this needed to have happened. You see, there, there were many things that could have been done differently or, or didn't have to be done at all that wouldn't have caused these problems. And I would suggest that they are leading us to a crisis and, and to a deliberate impoverishment of people on earth, which in, if you look at the historical record, means that people have to sell off their property, their businesses, their homes for pennies on the dollar and the wealthiest people benefit. And I suggest that we are seeing a controlled economic demolition to, to create that uh, a, a, a depression or a, re, a serious recession all over again that will transfer wealth upwards. And um, I, I wish I didn't have to say that, but that's the way I see things. Thank you. No, I think that's 
that's great to put your thoughts on COVID into that wider geopolitical context. I just have one final question, if that's okay. And it pertains to the resistance to this and the fracturing of that resistance. So um, in my background, I spent quite a bit of time looking at 9-11 and the 9-11 attacks and been involved in interviews of people who were um, in the FBI and the anti-terror unit at, at the time and getting their perspectives and all sorts. And one thing that really damaged that movement was the fracturing uh, along ideological lines into people who believed it was allowed to happen or people believed it was made to happen or the yes. buildings were brought down or and then the really more fringe force like no planes hit the buildings they were holograms no plane hit the pentagon and it stops any kind of legal challenge evolving uh, because there's always a more fringe position inserting itself in so right for for me and for a lot of people um coming into understanding viruses it's not something I ever wanted to do, but it's been forced upon us because now I have to stay in my home whenever the government says so, because there's an imaginary enemy. And there are these parallels with the 9-11 movement. People, there were groups that said, Al-Qaeda, you know, it really doesn't exist. And there were no hijackers on their plane. It was all remote controlled. And the other people said, no, no, they do exist. And they were on the plane, but they were patsies. And you have this, and obviously in a, to a certain level, different perspectives and understanding of subject is good, but it also becomes very destructive. So I've been asked by people more than anything to, to ask you to comment on your article, uh, does the virus exist? Because we see um, with, you, you specifically mentioned uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman in that, and there's like, let's take him as being representative of a, of a wider group. Um, I think for people who are really outside of the science, like myself, it's very hard to look at people who seem to say sensible things a lot of the ways, then coming to this complete disagreement over something so fundamental. So could you perhaps, what I've, People have actually specifically asked I have you to, asked you. I'm going to disappoint you and uh, turn this around a bit. Yep. I, I wrote three articles in response to Andrew Kaufman and uh, people with a similar opinion that I felt were completely unable to back it up with facts or understanding of, of the scientific processes that were involved. They misrepresented them, created straw man, and then uh, knocked their straw man down. So at the end of my third article, I said, I'm not talking about this again. <laughs> so you can read them if you like on, on my blog. You can just look up Andrew Kaufman or is there a virus? But yes, there's a virus. Um, and as I said, it was made in a lab and uh, may have been made in several labs that, that shared viruses around. But I do want to go back um, to what you said about 9-11 being uh, movement being splintered. So what we're seeing now in the enormous amount of propaganda that has, has made a lot of people completely anxious and uh, impaired so they cannot, I think we've had, we have a lot of things going on. We have a lot of propaganda, but I think that we have been deliberately fed much contradictory information so that even if you had a PhD in virology, were you to believe all the different information that the media and the and the medical journals put forward, you still couldn't make sense of things because there's so much chaff within the wheat mixed in and and made to look very attractive. So um, what we're seeing is an incredibly sophisticated psychological operation. In the UK, um, we have the book, A State of Fear, which laid out how the British government created a subcommittee of SAGE called SPI-B, S-P-I-B, whose job it was 
to use uh, psychological warfare on the public to make them comply. And many have acknowledged it was totalitarian, it was mind control, it was psychological warfare. Um, so, so read that book, A State of Fear. Um, in addition to the public being subjected to that kind of um, assault, we also have, you know, extremely sophisticated psychological operations that involve infiltrators. So that in the 9-11 movement, you had all sorts of different infiltrators trying to disrupt the movement. That's happened in all previous, you know, movements that have challenged the government. This is nothing new. This has to be expected. And, you know, in, in the current groups, we, I see many people whom I believe, not many, but a few people who I suspect are infiltrators. Um, and I give them a wide berth. Um, I don't know what the solution to the infiltrator problem is, but I would direct you to an article that just came out yesterday or today in the Epoch Times that talks about the government infiltrators uh, who were involved in pushing people into the Capitol on January 6th of last year. Uh, it's, a, it's an important article because this was, these were federally employed police officers and others. We don't know who all of them are. Some uh, belonged to organizations that were allegedly anti-government, uh, but were probably set up as uh, set up from the start as organizations designed to, to create problems. So there are false flag um, personnel involved. And uh, so when you do, uh, like me, become active in trying to um, alert people about what you consider official government uh, perfidy, lies, uh, crimes, one has to be very careful, look at the background of the people you're working with. You know, what did they do before? Uh, did they really do that or did they do something else? You know, does it all make sense? I'm fortunate I have a 33 year history of, of working in this movement and people can look at what I've done and see what I've written since then. And um, so my, my credentials luckily are established, but people who have just come into this and never did anything before, you know, you have to, you have to wonder why they're there. So um, yeah, just be, realize, you know, there are the most um, skilled people at psychological operations are directing operations against us and we have to be smart and um, avoid them as much as we can. Thank you very much, Dr. Nass. Is there anything you'd like to add? Please do, or else we'll, I don't think so. Thanks. We'll conclude there. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye.